Hello, and welcome back to the Health, Wealth, and Happiness podcast. This is Bailey. And this is Natalie. We're very excited to share this episode with you, but before we do that, we just wanted to touch on a couple of things. If you haven't already joined our email list, we have a link in our show notes to do so. Um, We have an email that we send out every Monday evening, and with that email, we send out some VIP content, some maybe behind-the-scenes stuff from the episode that we released that day, as well as a journal prompts that we work with our guests to create, and they're always prompts that really get you thinking and they're really fun things to really dig into your journal about. And if you're in need of a journal, we still have some HWH hand-stamped journals available on our big cartel link will always be in the show notes. They're $9, super affordable, free shipping and 100% recyclable. So really stoked about these and we know you're going to love them. Yes. So kind of getting into this episode, um, The guest that we have on is actually Natalie's brother, and he's a scientist. So this is a really fact-based episode, which is kind of different from the regular content that we have. And one of my mentors always used to say to me, um, if you're doing any type of like healing work or anything that kind of like gets your head in the clouds like that, you always have to have one foot in and one foot out. So this is kind of like that one foot in the real world to kind of balance you out and really get you grounded uh, because this is a lot of facts in this episode. And we really encourage you to keep your mind open, take in all the information, decipher it for yourself, and then form your own opinions on it. But science is obviously really important. It's all proven stuff and science is always changing, but these are facts. So it's a really great episode. Mm -hmm. And as Kavena said in our first episode this season, it is really important to work the flexibility of your mind, even if you are trying to be more intuitive and in, in with yourself. So have an open mind when you listen to this. It might be something uncomfortable you don't normally listen to, but you definitely will grow from it. So to get into a little bit about Joe, he is currently a staff scientist at Johns Hopkins working in the Lieber Institute for Brain Development. His focus for the last four years has been to find a cure for autism. Prior to his current position, Joe holds 10 plus years of research experience from fields of cardiopulmonary disease, diabetes, cancer cell biology, muscle physiology, neuroscience, and nutrition. And I can definitely vouch as his sister that he spends so much time doing this research. So, you know, you can trust him in these fields. And if you enjoy this episode, please be sure to review us and give us a great rating on Apple podcast. We see you rating us in there and it's helping us already. So thank you if you already have, but if you haven't, please help us out and go into Apple podcasts and give us a review. So we hope you enjoy this episode. I guess we'll just start. <laughs> we got sure. some convo. Uh, basically, so this is really cool. I don't know. I'm really excited. My brother, my big brother is on the podcast and he is a researcher. Whoa, Joe, welcome. <laughs> We're so happy to have you. We're really happy to have a more scientific episode because a lot of the people that we have on are really, um, woo woo out there concepts, which we love obviously. And those people are studied and researched in their own realm, but you're very science-based and that's very different for us. So we're excited to have a little bit of a different type of episode to kind of dig in deep and uh, get some facts. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the, the mode of the world right now with fake news, which we will dive deep into and the landscape of social media. I think it can get kind of hard to figure out what's real and what's not. And I'm really excited to have you on here to kind of share your wealth of knowledge and how you do things as a actual researcher. So Joe, what is your title? What are, what are you currently doing? uh, Right off the bat. Thanks for having me guys. Uh, Obviously I've known you forever almost. So it's kind of cool to put your own projects into my realm and sort of branch out and give some perspective I currently right now, I'm at Johns Hopkins. I'm a staff scientist. So the science world is, it's interesting because titles matter, but to a certain extent, 
Um, obviously, you have like your bachelor's, master's, PhD. Uh, but when you actually go into the research world past graduate school, you fall into some sort of realm. Uh, I kind of fell into initially a technician, which is just grinding hours on end, focusing on research, doing things over and over to eventually developing my own sort of ideas, methodologies, uh, became a research associate. And then finally this last, during the pandemic actually, mid pandemic, cause you know, science stops for no one nope. all in lab the entire time. Uh, we, I got my uh, title changed to staff scientist, which was pretty cool. I was really happy about that. Um, I really love where I work, my boss, everyone there. Um, yeah, so that's, I mean, I get delve into the titles, but the titles aren't as important as like the ability to do research and the freedom to sort of express yourself through that. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, I think that's really important. And that's what we're trying to get across is I don't think titles matter, but it's showing that, you know what you're doing, you're doing it for your job. Right. I, I joked with my boss when he hired me and we could go into this more um, about my background too, which is a super interesting background quite comical. It might actually discredit everything I'm about to talk about when we go back through it. Um, but when I started, I said, I really enjoy research. I don't enjoy the politics behind it. And I would love to work at a almost a postdoc or PhD level with the research, but not have the responsibility as far as the other things, which we can talk about. There's, you know, overhead, there's people above you, there's PIs that question you. Um, he said, yeah, that's great. So each year, and each successive year, I, I, oh, I'm sorry, my dogs are barking. It's fine. We can keep going. Um, it kind of gives me more opportunity each year. You show you can do well. And then he rewards you by saying, hey, like, here you go. Here's a position change. Or here's like another project. So it's kind of how much you want to take on. Um, but yeah, science is a different beast than, um, you know, politics or, or even the lawyers. You know, it's a different field altogether. So that's you know, take that for what you will. So when you like start doing research and obviously you've had this, um, like promotions and you've kind of like had this journey as a researcher, do you, are you always researching one topic or does that change, uh, like yearly quarterly? Like, how does that work? Are you just researching one topic or is it different every once in a while? No, that's, that's a good question. Uh, if you want, I could kind of start from the beginning of my journey, and that might help explain that question further. It might be a good two, three minutes, but maybe I mean, if it. you guys aren't opposed to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm great. So hold on. Let me wet the whistle because this is going to be a long... When I lecture or give talks or anything, my mouth gets very dry. Um, so don't cut yeah. this out in post. <laughs> Joe is drinking a... What is it? Beer? Uh, yeah, just a, a session IPA. Just, just one beer to, you know, you session. loosen the session up you know, let the mind wander. So when I started, we're going to go back to high school. That's a really quick quip. But in high school, I basically almost flunked out of high school. Um, my freshman year or whatever the years, beginning year, I forget high school, almost flunked out. Um, I continued on. I was some sort of punk rock kid. You know, I didn't, you know, fight the man. I didn't care. I was in a band. I was going to go far. Mm -hmm. um, quite the opposite of exactly everything else that I'm doing right now. So I got out of high school. I wanted to be a welder because, you know, welding is cool. And I had a Jeep and that just sounds so fun. And it did. And I welded, you know, as a passion, as a project. But as Natalie can tell you, every time I have a hobby, I become so immersive in it. I, it's, a, it's borderline obsessive, but it's mm -hmm. obsessive to where I would research the topic. With, I have books here on weld. I don't weld anymore, but I have the books because, you know, you immerse yourself in a topic, you go through it. Uh, so I went to mom, our mom was very forward with education. Uh, you know, you hate her immediately in it, but you thank her afterwards for it. So I, she kind of was like, you have to go to community college. You just have to go. So I took a couple BS classes, uh, psychology, public speaking, stuff like that. Um, really enjoyed it. And over time developed a general interest in kind of the education and, you know, College and high school are totally different things. So you kind of can become your own thing, your own being. Um, maybe that's not the best description, but I mean, everyone goes through life different. So at that point in time, I took a holistic health class, which very much pertains to this podcast from what I've listened so far. Uh, and just to keep things short, I enjoyed it. 
I enjoyed, I would say 70 to 80% of it. There was one lecture in particular that I had a huge problem with, and it was with holistic medicine and cancer treatment. And it not necessarily saying, it pretty much just came out and said definitively that these few herbs will help you, will prevent cancer and stuff like that. And, and I actually challenged the professor. They didn't like it. But uh, as Natalie might tell you, you know, we are a combative siblings. Like we, mm-hmm. we challenge each other. It's not just a, it, it's, it's almost like we challenge each other to make ourselves better. Yeah. We know something, but we want each other to be better. So I, I challenged the professor. She didn't like it. And that kind of, that was the spark almost. When that happened, I'm like, crap, there's a lot of like wrong people and they just don't want to either admit it or a pride issue. And this is, you know, young, naive Joe, I'm still wanting to be a punk rocker. I didn't give two shits. Sorry, pardon my French about like that kind of stuff. So then, okay, just checking. I had to put the (laughs) French part in there. I don't speak many languages. Um, No French. You don't no. speak French. Uh, je ne sais quoi. And uh, omelette du fromage, which was from Dexter's lab, which, you know, in Dexter's lab that, <laughs> you know, research science. So that kind of sparked it. I then started to take more science E classes, you know, your biologies, your chemistries, the basic stuff. Transferred from there to Towson. So at that point, I was kind of knees deep in what I thought was my topics of interest, you know, science. I was at that point, I was convinced I was going to cure diabetes, like hardcore. Um, again, naive Joe. I go in my first semester, I think I own Towson, and then I commence to fail biology. Uh, that is, for all those not knowing in a science background, that is bio 101 is pretty much the cornerstone of your degree. You feel that, you might as well just leave. So then that was a huge self-evaluation. I... I sat back, it was actually the winter time, it was Christmas, because I got the grades back. And of course, our parents saw them and, you know, the natural falling out, everyone has parents that have, you know, a response, it's probably similar. Um, so then after that happened, I had to evaluate myself. And I said, I'm going to either get straight A's from here on out. Or I'm just not kind of cut out for this sort of stuff. And I think that's a it depends on the individual. Some people that might be unrealistic for me at the time, having almost failed out of high school and undergrad and my first semester in like actual college, that's pretty daunting. And again, the degree I was in, this is not to poo-poo other degrees, but science degrees inherently force more credits on the individual. You have to take a class that's three credits. And then you take a lab that's one credit. Well, the one credit lab is five hours, one day a week. You have to be in this lab it's only one credit. It's, it's annoying. And you have eight of those, give or take, throughout your four-year degree. So for me, that was a daunting task. I winded up going through with that. After that first semester, that's when the research bug kind of hit. Uh, you, you know, you start to read things, you delve deeper into topics. And again, with the welding, I became obsessed with it and I researched it. Now I'm in the field I'm interested in, diabetes. And I started to read more about it, not just articles like, you know, the Sun paper or NBC, whatever that is, but Mm -hmm. actual scientific articles. So that was the impetus for me to move into research. Now, at the time, uh, I don't think I mentioned the degree. It was exercise science. So my degree was lifting weights, nothing glorified, nothing special. Uh, And literally, I think 85% of the people in that degree, give or take, we're going into some sort of PT field, not what I wanted. I did not want to go PT route or AT. I wanted to actually do research, which was, I think, three or four people out of our graduating class were actually interested in it. So there was a new professor and he was interested in doing research. And I said, look, whatever you want, give it to me. When you do research at the undergrad level, you're a slave to the work. You put in 20 hours a week, you don't get paid. You pray, you get something out of it. Uh, Luckily, I mean, my professor, Dr. Dobrzelski, Devin Dobrzelski, so it's Dr. D.D., so when I, it, it was always confusing to write his name because he made fun of it because there's like 20 letters in there, um, but he really, he was my first sort of mentor for the process, and his, the one statement that sticks with me, and I use it, you know, I teach people now, right, they come through the lab, whether they're a rotating student, a PhD student, 
uh, just someone actually rotating as an intern for a year or two, it's important to have like a fundamental idea. And his was be dogmatically opposed to the dogmatism. And that sounds kind of stupid at first, but to give a greater example, like if you say a cell, we know we're all made up of cells, these single organisms within our body, millions of cells. If I told you, this would be like 1800s, whatever it was, that a cell is the only thing that makes up your body. It's the smallest thing that makes up your body. That's the dogmatism for the time. At that time, that is what we believed. And then years later, we find atoms, right? Atoms are now the smallest thing. So you can kind of see, because we challenge societal means, it usually helps us further as a society. Mm. That's kind of the, the broader topic. I like um, that. that that's, that's the short end of it. We could go into grad school too. I feel like I did a lot of talking there. I don't know if you guys have any, um, any quick questions or something. No, that was good. I think I love that last quote right there. It's prevalent right now is like questioning. Don't just accept everything you hear um, because that is how you grow. You can't grow unless unless someone, if something's pointed out that's wrong about you, you might be like, oh shit, like I need to change that. Um, so that's really, I mean, the core of growth and we're all about growth on this podcast. So I love that. But also, so why didn't you, when you were like going through school and you were like, oh, I either need straight A's or I need to drop this. I mean, what about like C's get degrees? You know, that's the thing. I, I don't know. I just think it's kind of uh, stark. It It is. And the th and I, I don't hate, I hate alienating, alienating an entire group. Um, but for the sake of this argument, I kind of have to a PhD in biochemistry is extremely different than a PhD in most other things. History, for instance, because with history, the history is made. You research it, you look up the articles you do. With biochemistry, you're physically in the lab, in the bench, you work 60 hours a week on top of classes. You, my, sorry, my degree was not biochemistry, but for perspective, these are opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, I knew what was ahead of me for grad school, and I, it was a test. If I could do this test, that means, sure, Joe, you can go away to grad school and you can actually succeed or no, you're going to go to grad school and repeat what you did in high school and undergrad. Um, that, that made the most sense to me. Again, I think I was 20, 21. I, I had a very long, arduous path through uh, our education system, mainly because I didn't want to go to college. So I took my time in the associates I took my time in undergrad. And then when I finally got to grad school, I was like, you know, hit the ground running, crushed it. kind of. Yeah. So. Um, and I can definitely attest that when you get a hobby, you are fully immersed yeah. in researching it. Example A, I gave you a recipe for bagels for Christmas and all the ingredients. And he comes to text me and say, oh, these aren't weighted ingredients. They're just measured. And I'm like, oh my gosh, didn't know we were, <laughs> you know, I should have assumed I'm giving a gift to a researcher who is very particular about <laughs> the measurements. It's, it's kind of a, a quick aside. Like when dad makes pizza, he says, this is the best pizza I ever made. And I ask, well, what should you do? And he's like, I didn't measure it. I'm like, well, there's no repeatability, dad. Yeah. That's like, I would get fired. If I showed my boss a picture and said, we're putting this in the paper and he asked, where's the data? I was like, ah, I just, I winged it. Yeah. I get fired. Like the, so there's <laughs> that repeatability part. Um, yeah. It's kind of ingrained in me at that point. And it was no disrespect for you. The bagels were delicious. Oh, I know. I know. But it's like that perfectionist level of, you know. Yeah. Um, anyway, family aside, when you were getting into these new hobbies before, you know, the current day, what kind of sources were you using and how did they evolve as time went on? And what did you learn throughout this entire process? What to look for? And I mean, this is a loaded question. You could go into a lot of different ways, but I think that's the basis of it, right? Like how do we find a source and you start from point A to point B? Yeah, that it's, it sounds like a loaded question. And unfortunately it is extremely straightforward, but it depends on the individual. It's your receptiveness to change. And I, throughout this entire podcast, I guarantee you that's going to be a theme. Um, to put it simply, 
And I, I mean, come on, I was guilty of this. I think March 10th, we were sitting around the lunch table. Mind you, the entire table that I eat lunch with is 10 scientists ranging from PhD to postdoc to PIs. And we all shared complete opposite opinions north or south of the current climate. I said, point blank, there's no way we shut down. It's impossible. Uh, a couple people agreed with me. A couple people disagreed with me. Um, there were one or two people already in the Institute wearing masks. So you can see even in the scientific community, there's a range of outcomes. But very quickly, within five to seven days, there's a willingness to change. We recognize the severity of the situation uh, and you kind of adapt. So to answer your question, there's one main source that you can usually always fall back on. Uh, it's NCBI, N as in Nick, C as in Carly, I guess, B as in Bolin and I as in intelligence. So that's like a, just a, a general research engine for scientific things. If you go into Google and type in a couple things together and then put NCBI behind it, you'll usually get some research article. Now the problem inherently comes from, can you decipher this? And I always offer my two cents. I'm still on Facebook for some reason. I don't know why I stay on there. Probably it's because my own sort of sadistic mentality. Maybe it's because I still try and help people. Uh, I constantly reach out to people as a finishing argument, as I like to say, is please contact me. I will talk to you face-to-face -face at a distance. We can talk on the phone. I'm willing to help you. I don't think I know everything, and I know I don't know everything. I know a lot about a little. That's the job of a researcher. I know a lot about cancer and maybe you know autism and things like that, but I still actually, in the grand scheme of those things, know very little compared to someone 20 years experience, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, so I can take the novice past a certain point, but I can't go past the expert. And we really, it, there's no real such thing as an expert. You're an expert in a very tiny margin. Um, so NCBI is a really good resource, not to beat around the bush. Also Google, and that sounds stupid, but I would say, um, you know, in a different time, if this was a YouTube channel or something, or we're in person, I could show you this. If you take an article that you don't necessarily believe or something that has a couple sentences that are super contradictory to the norm or the dogmatism, if we want to repeat that part, if you just Google that and look through the sources, just read through them quickly. Uh, also, the article itself, there's a huge problem in America, and it seems to be mostly America. Nobody reads the whole freaking article. Do you, that's the equivalent. I wrote a research paper very recently that was published. And if you just read the abstract and you made a decision, it would offend me immensely. Not that it doesn't happen every day. You use the abstract to gauge interest. If the abstract inter interests you, please delve into the paper. That is three years of my life into 10 pages. It sounds meaningless, but it's a lot of effort. So if, if you read a title of an of a article and whatever it is, and you post it, you're a jackass because you need to actually read the article, understand it, and understand what questions someone will have for you. So Google too. I, take any article that you don't agree with, Google it, and Google the opposite of it. You will find two opposing themes. And also Google the person that posted it. Not the Facebook person or Instagram person, but the actual journalist. There are biases in journalism. We all know this. So Google the journalist. It will come up straight up. They're a what? X, Y, Z, whatever. It could be anything. They could be an extremist. They could be a liberal. It could fall anywhere in the means. And you should get multiple opinions. Just because you listen to multiple opinions doesn't mean that you kind of ingest it all. But mm -hmm. you should try to as a person because very much recently it's become a Republican versus Democrat thing in America. And I think both sides have interesting topics, but as a whole, we should look to the betterment kind of of the people. That's kind of just going down a different path, but I think Google and NCBI are great. Google, if you use it properly, okay. don't go in it with biases. So just to clarify too, NCBI is a search engine. So essentially like Google, just for scientific documents. Is that correct? Yeah, it's pretty much all scientific articles. Um, there's a lot of other stuff on there that no one else will have any use for besides someone working in a lab. But if you were to go in there, there's a search engine. It looks like it's out of the 80s too. I don't think they've updated the main page in forever. 
Um, but if you go there and plug in two or three words, like for instance, something pertaining to me, oligodendrocytes, autism, you're going to get tons of articles. You can search by most recent, um, you know, most viewed, all these things. And the biggest thing is recognize the age of what is showed. Um, and kind of what that means is it, it sucks because science moves slow, not to move down this pandemic, but it's a good example. The people that develop the vaccine should get a Nobel Prize. It's impossible to do this in the amount of time. And they've done it though. What took me three years is just a paper. I have no drug to save these people. I have no, I have an idea now that I can move forward, but that took me three years. So it took me three years to do this and it's taking seven months to create a vaccine to a novel virus. Um, science moves slow. So also be recognizing the age of an article. Something coming out this last year, I'd say 2019 to 2021 is great. Anything older than that is old news as far as science is concerned. I know that sounds weird, but mm-hmm. it's kind of the nature of the beast. Yeah. So to kind of outline, it would be finding articles. If you're using Google, find both opposing, like the one side you're on, maybe opposing, read both, uh, look at who wrote the article, do a little bit of research on them, Google them, see what comes up for them. Cause they could be an extremist, for example, Um, Do you guys remember during like amidst the prime time of the pandemic, there was a woman, I don't remember her name, but there was a YouTube out of her saying how the entire pandemic is fake and it was going viral. Did any of you watch that? Mm. So I didn't watch it. Sorry, Bailey. I don't know if you wanted to clock in on that. Did you see it? I didn't see it, but I I saw similar things, so I could have seen it. I don't know. There's what, there was a lot of them. Yeah. Was it the the plan pandemic or something? Yes. Like, uh, yes. I, I didn't watch it because um it's absolute bullshit. <laughs> um, but the the issue is digestibility to the masses, and I take this for granted. Um, my wife is a nurse. It is very easy for our dinner conversation to revolve around our jobs. Like we talk about stuff, it would be a, a different language to someone else. I benefit from that. When I bring something to the masses, I can totally see it not being reciprocated. It's very common. So for me to tell you that I could prove systematically that the pandemic was not made in a lab, COVID-19, the actual genome sequence, it's been sequenced to show it's novel. I don't think people would care. Those words are foreign to people, but if they were to sit down for five minutes, we could, we could kind of hash this out. I've actually talked to several people about it. Some are receptive, some are just, you know, they blow it off. They, they don't want to change their mentality. Um, I don't know, if you can change one person, you can change the world, it's a day at a time, but it's kind of interesting to see science take a back seat uh, for this at least. But yeah. yes, I did, I did see that. It was, uh, didn't watch yeah. it, but I, I, knew what it, I knew what it was about. It's, it, was, it was sent to me by someone very close to us. And I was like, I, I watched it because I was like, okay, this person is a very like, they were like, you got to watch this. And I was like, okay, this is kind of terrifying. So I watched it and it caused, it was like very ingestible. It was easy for anyone to watch. And it did, it just knew how to create anxiety in someone. And then I was like, hold up. I had to take a pause. And I, I did just that. I looked up who this lady was that was in it and come to find out she was all completely like just all conspiracy theories like she was wasn't she like theorist. denounced from Fauci's lab from yes. like seven years yeah yes I, yeah. and it's like that is just proof right there like do your research you made on me proud who there. Was right you made in. me proud <laughs> because I literally I was like a little like anxious at first and I was like Adam like have you seen this and I was like hold up let's just google and we were laughing we were like oh my god this person like probably listening to this episode you know who you are <laughs> I don't want to put them on blast I can say after the episode, but, um, I was like, this is comical. Like it just shows it goes viral. You send it to someone, you know, it it triggers you, you don't do any research and then boom, boom, boom. It's worldwide. So kind of going off of that, I would love to dig into COVID in a bit, but, um, fake news is obviously huge right now. It's huge on social media. You see it all the time. And so many people do just see the headline, click on the article, skim it a little bit, maybe see a picture and they freak out and they share it. Are there any things that you can look for that will like immediately tip you off that it's fake or without going in and like researching everything, which is obviously very important, but we don't always have the time, um, the resources or the 
mental capacity to do it? Are there any things that you can kind of just quickly look for uh, that really just tip you off that it's not real information? It's a great question. I will say right off the bat, the things you threw at the end, mental capacity dealing with, like if you don't want to deal with it, don't. Um, I, I try to deal with it for people. You know, you have your circles, you have your friends, your acquaintances, and then people you just know. If it's someone I just know, I pass it on. Have your best life. Good luck. But if it's someone that I'm acquainted with or related with, I try to help them at every chance I can. So I do make that like mental effort that you're making hurdles for yourself. It's not going to be easy. You're convincing someone the opposite of their opinion. Um, so, I mean, that just right off the bat. But the biggest thing to, it, it kind of goes back to the whole, you just read the abstract. If the title looks salacious, something just so extravagant that it can't be true, chances are it probably isn't. But somewhere in the article, they've made a statement that sort of tags, you know, that title and makes it look like, whoa, this needs to be true. Or, wow, if this is true, whatever. Um, and we can talk about this later, too, with COVID, specifically the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, there's been some blood clot issues, which we can delve right into that later. But if someone just goes for, there's layers. The first layer is reading a title. You don't get past that. Well, don't talk to me. You just read a title of an article. You don't know anything. You read the article. Okay, good. Now you have some sort of understanding, but research past it. Look at opposite opinions. Go past that even further. Develop your own opinion. Very rarely do you actually develop your own opinion. You take people's words you ingest them and regurgitate them. Develop some opinion. It might not be the same exact opinion. You might pull things together and make a different opinion similar, but not this. So hopefully that kind of answers your question to an extent. Um, the, the biggest things, the titles, I would say other than that, if there's some outlandish statement, it's usually false uh, or it's more grandiose than it should be. Uh, I can give, actually, I wrote this number down today. I was looking at this today in preparation for this. I'm going to turn a page because I wrote it down, um, not to dump right into this. So with the Astra AstraZeneca vaccine, 15 people had uh, deep vein thrombosis, blood clots. We just call for what it is. And then 22 had pulmonary embolisms. Again, deep blood clots in the lungs. That sounds scary as shit, um, whoever you are. Also, those are big words. So that would scare anybody. And that was in an article of a picture of a lady who took the vaccine and then four days she died. I can walk out of my door tomorrow and trip and die. I can get hit by a car. I can get struck by lightning. I got the vaccine. Are the two related? So it's kind of breaking apart the two things. And to put this in perspective, if you actually look up the number of blood clots per 17 million people, which are the amount of people that got vaccinated with AstraZeneca so far, uh, the, the number is severely lower um, for a normal population, but not a lot. What that tells me is that, I think it was half that number. What that actually just, if you think of it simplistically, 17 million people, maybe half of that get blood clots. Well, that's a healthy population, mixed, but healthy. Everyone that gets the vaccine, what's the priorities right now? At first it's over 90, then 80, then 70, people with comorbidities. So you're dosing people that already have issues. There's a chance that it sounds terrible, but they might pass before an expected timeline. So this is just like a, a sensationalized headline. So when, when I saw this article, all the article said was mother of two, 40 something, dies two days after, three days after, whatever. Duh, come on, get out of here. Like. Mm -hmm. Sit down, read the article, and then Google it. Just look up these things. I know that sounds annoying and it's trivial and it's effort, but very rarely do people put in effort these days, mm -hmm. I guess. And something I want to just remind everyone that we're all very familiar with, I mean, it's marketing. These people yeah. have to get paid too, and there's money involved in all of this. And um, a headline obviously is meant to catch attention. And I think that's the part is like, read further. Don't just read the article and the subtitle. Um, I've done it before. And until this past year, I did it a lot. But now this year, I'm like, no, I need to like actually read this. I can't just go off of what I'm hearing from people or Instagram or all these things. I, I mean, let's get into social media. I, I love social media. I think it's great. But there is this increase of fake news and headlines. And then these bloggers who 
aren't doing research are sharing something to their millions of followers. And then it creates this bubble effect. I don't know if you watched the, it's a documentary on Netflix called the social dilemma, I believe. Have you I haven't it? yet. I heard it's great and okay. scary. I also yeah. do enjoy social media to an extent. You should watch it. Cause it is, it's like you create, I mean, you follow certain people on Instagram, Google, if you watch the documentary, you'll find out is actually catering your research result, like the results to you as a person, they know your location, they know your interest and they're actually feeding you. Like if you go Google the same thing as Bailey and I, we would get very different results. So like, that's kind of scary. And I'm like, Ooh, um, but then also like social media, you follow people who confirm your bias usually usually yep. like we all follow very similar people to ourselves so it, it, it just creates this bubble effect and you're like what is real I'm gonna I, I live in this bubble how do I get out of it so what are your thoughts on social media just in general I know you you like it you use it a lot I see you on it. <laughs> <laughs> I I enjoy it for the reasons they're not, it's not necessarily selfish but I guess when you show things you're proud of it's somewhat selfish like a I'll show a meal I cooked or hey, I'm out here playing disc golf or pre-pandemic, it was, hey, I'm in the poker room. It's more or less like hanging out, doing this. Um, but I, I am curious too. I like other people's things they're doing. I like watching what they do. So I think social media is a double-edged sword. It's both in good and bad. I think it's really important for people to have opinions and the world is kind of shaped by opinions. It's, it's important because it's kind of dictating everything. So my opinion might not necessarily be true or false, but we can have a conversation about it. And that's usually what social media is about. The problem is when you run into someone who pushes an agenda or pushes a specific topic that may be negative for the overall global whatever. I mean, we could talk about, you know, anything from pandemic to anti-vaxxers to, you know, global warming. These things that we know are actually true, flat earth. And when you push a topic that's unequivocally true on the opposite end where they're trying to say, oh my gosh, this vaccine did this or the earth is not flat. You kind of can actually damage society. And that's fine if you're just viewing these things as an extremist and you don't want to flip the world on a script. But the bigger problem is when you come into a situation where, you know, we have 300, I think it was about 350, 30 million people, give or take, in America. And when a large percent of that population starts to take this as true, as far as anti-vaxxing and stuff like that, you run into a situation where we might actually not get out of this cleanly. Uh, you know, the more acceptance is better, and oh my gosh, my freedoms, my governments, but it's a dangerous tool. And I think that's where, if I were to post something I don't think any of my friends would sway either way. If I said the sky is red, they'd be like, uh, probably not. But it comes into play when someone of, let's say any famous football player or a politician or some, someone of prevalence in this person's lives respectively says something, well, they might worship that person or feel that that person is you know, bigger than them, which they're not, they're all human. And that's when the trouble comes in. When you have, for instance, these mega churches. At one point, these mega churches said that uh, Jesus would blow away the virus. Well, this is just like clinically insane. But you have a following. It's a church. This is a following. That's social media in essence of, you know, a mass following, mass gathering. And you run into a similar problem. So I think it's recognizing what you can and can't do and just hopefully not damaging the lives of others for your social benefit. Um, this all factor, like titles, for, we've already talked about that. The title of an article, it's shock and all, it gets you in there, like Natalie had mentioned, you know, it's, it's gotcha journalism, it gets you in there. And then you're just like, eh, doesn't really bother me. Like if, if you're a rich celebrity, most of these things don't bother you and you have opinion on something that doesn't affect you. Like a stimulus package, we could go down there. Um, a large percentage of famous celebrities, it will never affect them. But if they have an opinion about it, we'll just butt out. Like f find your lane and stick to it. If you want to enact, you know, global warming, if you want to talk about that, well, that's cool. Have a place, good or bad, but have a, a standing and have 
also research to back it. That kind of talked around in the circle, but hopefully that kind of enlightened a bit of my two cents. I think it's good and bad, and you can't really pick good or bad until you suss through the weeds of it. <laughs> well, and this is why it's important too, like to be able to have these conversations. I mean, this is a, a very civil conversation about oppo- not opposing views. That was a bad example of that, but like, it's also important to like normalize having conversations with opposing views and having these conversations with your friends and with your family and like bringing these things up, talking through them if possible in a civil manner and in a calm manner. And I know that's not easy for everyone, especially if you're not open-minded, but, um, just bringing these things up and talking about them. I mean, people have different perspectives. People have different pieces of information that they can chime in with and teach you something and maybe change your mind. And that's a really important thing to do right now. I think one of my, and Natalie can even chime in me and Andrew, my brother, uh, we would have some great debates when I was living at home and mom would think that we were arguing. And I said, no, we're just, it was a casual back and forth. There was no raise of the voice, but we would go back half an hour, an hour, just back and forth, good points. And like that just develops you as a human to be able to make your points. And it's not an argument. Again, it's a civil debate, not that we're disagreeing here, but it's, it's very good because you also might change your mind. Is that the worst thing in the world? No, no. I mean, are we the same 13 year olds we were? No, it's important to kind of shape your perspective by learning, not by like assimilation of what media is, these types of things. So Mm -hmm. yeah, mom still thinks that's arguing. (laughs) Oh, we're going to do it. You know, once he gets his vax, when we get together in holidays, it's going to happen again. It always happens every year. She's like, stop fighting. And just such a peacemaker. (laughs) (laughs) But it's fine. It's good to have opposing thoughts. Um, And then, yeah, that actually happened to me with Andrew recently. He was like, I was telling him my thoughts on like moving to California. And he was like, just challenging me. Like, I don't think that's a reason you should move, blah, 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 blah. And I got defensive. I did. I like, I'll be frank. Cause it like went against just what I was thinking. I was like, how could you like say that? Like, and he was like, it, but it was good. It made me actually go back a second later, like after he walked away and I was like, Oh, you know what? Like he actually has a point and it is it's growth. And if he didn't challenge me, if he just agreed with what I was saying, I would, I mean, you no one would go anywhere. I think we, right. Like, so yeah, change and all that. This is a common theme. (laughs) Everyone has been learning this this past year is that the value of change and growth. Yeah. It's also receptiveness though. You have to be receptive. mm, Yes. Because, and yep, initially I was defensive. And then when you walk away from it, you're like, okay, I'm cooled down now. He actually was challenging me in a good way, like making me realize things. And I think the important part there is to be, to open your minds enough that you can listen to the opposing arguments. You don't have to agree with them. You just have to be able to listen to them, understand them, and then make your own opinion. Like that's, that's the thing. Like you don't have to necessarily agree with it. It's just keeping your mind open enough to actually take that information in and like, let it soak in. Mm. 100%. Let's take a pause from the episode to talk about one of our partners, Rasa. Rasa is a woman-owned, one-stop wellness apothecary. They are more than just a coffee alternative. Rasa sells adaptogen blends that are herbalist formulated and obsessively sustainable. An adaptogen helps your body holistically resist a wide variety of stressors and have a normalizing effect on your overall body function to maintain homeostasis. Balance, baby! (laughs) Rasa consults science and tradition from Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, and Western herbalism using the world's best organic herbs for nourishing energy, stress, mood, immunity, libido, you name it, there is a blend for you. Say goodbye to chalky powders or pills and say hello to robust, rich coffee alternatives. My personal favorite blend is bold. It's bold. (laughs) It gives me deep energy and focus without the hard edge of caffeine. Bold is made up of scientifically backed dosages of nine different adaptogens, such as rhodiola, cordyceps, lion's mane, and chaga. 
You can brew rasa with a French press, my personal favorite technique, an espresso machine, AeroPress, Keurig, tea infuser, or simmering. So doesn't matter what you have in your kitchen, you can make rasa. Uh, rasa is third-party lab tested, which is so important for quality ingredients and just ingesting anything. You want it to be tested. It is gluten-free, sugar-free, vegan, USDA certified organic, and Whole30 approved. So you know you are getting quality products when you purchase from Rasa. To try Rasa for yourself, use the link in the show notes and code HWHPOD, spelled H-W-H-P-O-D, at checkout to receive 15% off your purchase. We recommend ordering the sampler pack to try the whole Rasa fam to find your fave blend that works for you. That's what we did, and I'm so glad I got to try all of them to find Bold was my favorite. Again, use code HWHPOD, P-O-D, at checkout to receive 15% off your first purchase at Rasa, spelled R-A-S-A. Let's get back to the episode. The thing is, I, I don't think I genuinely, I'm not like, fuck holistic health. I just say like, be questioning. Mm-hmm. We didn't have the chance to talk about it too. The fucking placebo effect is like the biggest effect in science. It's insane. Um, I've dicked with Natalie immensely about this because of everything she believes in. And I, I just question her immensely. And when she comes back with, it makes me feel good. I can't say anything because it's true. If something makes you feel good, what am I to argue about that? Like heroin makes people feel good. But if you feel good vis-a-vis a rock or a meditation or like something, I can't argue with that. I will argue if you want to say you know, I was on my deathbed and then the priest came over and like laid his hand on my head and I fucking came back or something. I want to challenge that because I, I genuinely am interested about religious intervention. I don't believe it's real. That's just me. But the placebo effect is amazing. Mm-hmm. That's a whole whole other topic for like another thing. But- yeah. When Jonathan said that in the Behold Retreats one saying like microdosing, they were researching to see if it's placebo effect. Like that's one side of it. And I was like, I actually wish we had a whole whole nother podcast. Um, I I actually wished. So I watched that one. It was, it was good. It wasn't bad. Um, I wished you asked more because Hopkins actually is like literally in the cusp of doing all these studies. Hopkins was the first one to actually do all these psychedelic studies. One of the people who was a PhD student in our lab was the first one in line for that study. Like, so it's on the cusp. Microdosing is like a huge thing. It's great. Um, We're about 10 years off from anything prescription wise, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, Which is good because, you know, all science is slow, but you know, if it's a pandemic, it's fast apparently, which that's a whole nother problem. If this was, uh, which depression, psychosis, all that is a pretty big deal, but it doesn't really, you know, affect the market. Clearly, we're not going to shut that down, but it should be more of a prevalent thing. I think microdosing will come to the forefront in five years, 10 years. It sucks as that slow. Maybe if you guys make a bigger deal about it, maybe it comes to the forefront. Maybe if you make a pandemic about it, it'll get done in uh, eight months. I think it was the vaccine start to finish. So So these are all really, really good topics. Um, Joe, obviously it's been a long time since I've seen you in person, but the last time I feel like I saw you when we were talking in person, you were doing research in red meat. And as you probably know, I'm a vegetarian. Um, I'm actually exploring, possibly trying meat again. But I remember like back in the day, you were challenging me. You were like, you really need to eat red meat. (laughs) And I don't particularly remember the reasons, um, but we're going to have an episode uh, either right before or right after you that will come up about someone who was like vegan for 10 years and just started eating meat again. So I would love for you to like maybe briefly talk about that, like what your research was, what you kind of learned and why you think we should be eating meat. When you say why we should be eating meat, it's not a end all be all. I think it's important to say you can supplement and do well, but you could do better from natural sources. 
My research from that is rather old, but anyone can actually physically go back in these sort of articles and find the same thing. I think there's one from 2000, 2014 is a re review article from Gapo Grappo. Um, I can link it to if you have a link for your podcast later. I'm, I'm not like, it's not right in front of me, but they pretty much lay out everything that deals with the heme form of iron. And red meat is in and of itself a really good source of protein, but you can get protein from other things. We know that. You can get complete sources. When you mix a meal with different vegetarian sources, um, you can get complete proteins. Obviously the egg is the most complete source of protein, um, but if you don't eat eggs, even if you're just strictly vegan, you can get a complete meal of protein. So if you want to strictly cut that out from the meat part, well, what's left? Why even eat meat? Because it, besides it tastes amazingly delicious. Well, it's the heme form of iron. I am not, I'm going to try not to use percentages and numbers because it's not right in front of me, but heme is actually the most abundant form of iron found in the blood, the body, everything. Uh, it carries oxygen. It does, iron does a lot of other things, but you know, the main thing is that, uh, I believe it's a four. Oh, I'm not going to go back into that. Cause this is going back to like undergrad. I don't want to botch my argument here. I think it's around 90%, if not 95% of the abundantly free form of iron in the body. So if you're not getting heme iron, which comes from meat, well, where do you get it from? Well, nowhere else. You, you relatively can't get it anywhere from meat or supplementation. You can eat things, leafy greens, coniferous vegetables, and get lots of iron. You can get lots of iron from other things, but the heme form of iron is strictly restricted to animal byproducts, whether that be I mean, chicken has less, red meat obviously is the king, um, but meats in general carry heme. Uh, we all know the importance of iron with regards to anemia and things like that. And you can avoid that largely by supplementation, um, even with like heme-based irons. Uh, I, I keep ha hating to say the word heme, but when you have something in the body that's so rapidly abundant, it has a reason, and I don't even have to get scientific with this. If you think about it, there's a reason that we have so much glucose free-floating in our body because our body rapidly uses this. So heme is the same thing. We rapidly want to use this thing. That's why it's a large percentage of the amount of iron in our body. That might not do the best justice, but the SparkNotes version of this is heme is the most abundant form of iron in our body. Animal byproducts have the most of it, and supplementation is usually subpar. I mean, if you supplement with vitamin D, sometimes 20% of that gets in your bloodstream. Like, we could go into those studies too. Um, I get air any questions, maybe, and hopefully double a little yeah. deeper. So, with heme iron, I know a lot of things you can obviously eat and get them, um, but sometimes your body makes these things too. Is heme iron something that you can only get from like digesting it? Ah, no, that's a great question because yes, I missed that. It, it's, it's pretty much strictly related to, I don't want to misquote it. It's related to either ingesting it or actually breaking down the body to get it. I think those are the two main sources from it. Um, it's kind of like ketosis, you know, you go into ketosis at a certain point, your body breaks down things to make the ketones to keep you going. You don't want to break down the body um, unless you're like extremely obese and you want to like rapidly digest fatty tissue or something. Um, actually, I could pull, I probably, I don't want to pull up the article and ruin the podcast. I could pull it up and get like a couple quotes, but you know. We can link it. So uh, after the fact, people can like look mm -hmm. into it and do their own research. And that can be kind of a challenge for our listeners too, to kind of look through a scientific document. Yeah, yeah. challenge it. Also, I, I remember the article strictly um, because when you, it's great. Scientific reviews are awesome because they don't give a shit what you think. They're going to put everything on the table. There's a whole chapter in the review it tells the link between meat and cancer and cardiovascular disease and diabetes. It gives you these links. It gives you the articles. It tells you like people that eat a large amount of meat. These are the most prevalent people in these categories for epidemiology. So when you eat meat, you're going to get these things if you eat it a lot, but the key is a lot. And I'm not a doctor as far as that field is concerned, but I would say if you eat a two to three ounce piece of red meat, once a meat, what? Tongue twister. You eat a two to three ounce piece of red meat once a week, you're usually good. 
there's a ton of available byproducts in there that are great for you. You don't need to like slap down that 15 ounce steak every couple of days. That's terrible for you. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's like a, a neutral ground that people should find for themselves too. Yeah. I remember when I was, um, getting lightheaded from not eating meat. And I was like vegan at one point very shortly because I was getting lightheaded. And then I talked to you and you said this whole spiel. And then you were like, (laughs) (laughs) you were like, yeah, just try to start to have red meat like once a month if you don't want to have it that much. So that's what I did. I like tried it once a month and I was like, does this help my lightheadedness? And it did. It like, it is, it's like figuring out how much you need personally on for your personal body. Um, And then, yeah, some people might need it more like every other week you need red meat. And even to this day, see, I I disagree with like meat tastes so good. The only meat I think tastes so good is chicken. Bacon. Oh, really? Oh, I love chicken. (laughs) And I'm learning. I I think a clarification too is I'm totally against like cruel treatment of animals. Mm -hmm. Um, There, it is expensive to buy humanely treated animals. So if you can just eat it once or twice a week, you know, a little bit of chicken, a little bit of red meat, you're not, first of all, breaking the bank. Second of all, you're doing your body good. And these animals are presumably, if you find a good source, treated humanely, you're not disrupting the ecosystem as a whole. This is a whole separate thing, a whole separate podcast. But I think these things kind of coincide. You can live your best life and still, oh, that was a dog. Still have a little bit of meat, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. I think the key really is just about balance and it's, it's nice to, to hear other people talking about it. Cause I'm kind of at the point where I'm convinced. I just want to try it and see how I feel, you know, like as a test. Um, and I've been vegetarian for so long though. It's just like weird to get past that, but I'm definitely there mentally. I just need to like physically do it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I, I, I vividly remember challenging everybody that said that they're vegan or vegetarian because it's so interesting to me. I, this is good for the viewers. Anyone that's listening, if you are talking to someone with an opposite view that you have, ask them questions, ask them all the questions in the world. Why do you do this? What is this? Why does that do that? If they can't answer one of them, they might change their mind for the better. If you're asking the questions, usually you have the answers. But if you ask someone who, for instance, like the red meat thing, yeah, a little bit of red meat every now and again is good. If I keep asking you questions, Maybe it comes down to the humane thing, which I totally respect. But again, there are natural sources. You're not going to get your $5 steak from this natural source. It'll be much more money probably, Mm -hmm. but you can kind of come to this agreement with yourself, your psyche and your outlook on life. Mm -hmm. I I want to thank you for always doing that to me (laughs) growing up. Um, I feel bad for you. I, well, yes, it probably listeners, you can see why I'm the way I am now. Um, but honestly, you challenging me, like asking me, you know, when I was vegan, I could easily say like, it was a sustainable reason and not as much animals. It was just like sustainability and all that. And then like you and Andrew would be like, well, if you only ate plants, there wouldn't be enough (laughs) plants in the world. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, like they're right. And then you know, it is, it just, it made me realize like, oh, I actually didn't do that much research on it. Like up both sides, I was very like one dimensional and it's helped me not get so into the like culty mindset. I think a lot of people really like dive all in and get like hundred percent for something. And, um, it's kept me out of that. It brought right. me grounded me. <laughs> I, I did a quick, this is a quick five second stint. I, in grad school, I put myself through the ringer. I think I tried four or five fad diets. It was a test. I wanted to, I was an N of one, uh, you know, one subject, but I tried them because I'm like, this is something people like and do. Let's see if it actually works. And, you know, one or two of them actually worked, but it's like any diet. Um, you could easily just do, if it fits your macros and lose weight, it's just people have this inherent trouble with counting things weighing your chicken, weighing your rice, weighing your broccoli, like they, people don't want to weigh it or waste the time. So I think it's, you get in when you, you know, put in, um, kind of a similar topic to what you're talking about, about like cults. I I just wanted to try all the fad diets. Yeah. (laughs) Some work. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Didn't you do, um, 
I think keto was the biggest one that worked. Yeah, but you also tried water diet or fasting or something, right? I think fasting, um, fasting was interesting. There was a weird, I don't know if it was necessity. I don't want to use the word clarity. I think it was uh, a lack of like neuronal stimulus in the brain that just sort of forced me to take a step back uh, because I'm not ingesting anything. So my body's ingesting itself for a couple of days. Uh, that was an interesting one. Keto, keto is really good. Keto works, but you have to stick with it. Uh, if you can just eat meat and vegetables for the rest of your life and never drink a beer, good for you. Like have fun. So just to clarify too, you say these diets worked, you mean you lost weight. I lost weight. I felt a lot of strength with with, uh, the keto diet. Once I got into ketosis, um, they work for weight loss. Some of them work for weight loss and weight strength. Uh, I, I, in undergrad, I was like a power lifter and then I shifted to more just like maintenance in grad school. Cause like, there's no time to live in grad school. Uh, but I thought that these diets when I was fully in them, didn't really inhibit me from that perspective, as far as gains, you know, every, you know, all the brews want to get gains. I don't think they actually affected me that way. So the diets worked for what they were, but it, any diet is only as good as how long you follow it. As soon as you get off keto and you eat that slice of pizza, bam, you're out of it. And you just wasted X amount of months on, you know, that. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to point out is something you've said is, uh, you know, the low carb isn't necessarily ketosis, like true keto, like not to shout her out, but our mom, you know, tries to eat low carb and she's like keto, but it's not keto. She's eating the carbs in right. lower amounts. Also any alcohol, you just put the kibosh mm. on it. Like it's, I, I think that, you know, it's balance. If you, if anybody wants to get interested in weight loss, in a reliable, sustainable fashion, look up if it fits your macros, email me too. I I can give you guys, you have my email. Um, I will help you like formulate it. I'm at the point in my age where I'm not going to get my eight pack back. Um, I do way too much work and research and shit to like care about that. Uh, I will, I, I also, I'm still like relatively fit, but if they want to get to a certain point and shred it, I can do it. I'm not a, I'm not a personal trainer, but you can get shredded on this stuff but you have to weigh everything. You have to regulate. It's the same thing with balance. You can't drink beer 24 seven. It's going to kill you. Like it's, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I'm more at the point of, you know, if I'm happy with my body, it's fine. Yeah. Like I'm not, you know, I think like you said, like who cares about the eight pack or six pack? Like if you're you happy with it. Yeah. But it's a time and a place. Yeah, exactly. And I think I, I'm just to the point I do whatever makes me feel good, whatever makes me happy and whatever comes from that. Great. I don't really care about the other stuff. Yeah. I think that's huge. Just feeling good in your own body and we're all different. So kind of to wrap this up, Joe, we ask everyone the same question to end the podcast. How do you live your best life? Huh? Well, me, myself, it's just, it's structure usually on the weeks. And then on the weekends, not structure lists, but having something to do and then letting the chips fall into place. Uh, during the week, I, I mean, I talked with, uh, we have a new technician that I'm training. And I said, look, I, I very much on Mondays, I write out my lists. I have everything on my list for the week. We accomplish it. Great. We don't. I'm kind of like pissed off because that was on my list. I should have done it. So I have very much structure from, well, as a scientist, like my schedule's made up. It could be like <laughs> eight to 10, two hours. It could be literally a 10 hour day. It's, I make my schedule. So within the frame of that week, if I don't accomplish my stuff, I'm upset. After work, and this is the biggest problem in my industry, at least, they always say, don't take work home with you. It's impossible as a researcher because everything's always happening. You're always thinking, you're always changing. Ideas are coming up. You'll wake up in the middle of the night. Holy crap, I could do this experiment. Um, The biggest thing is I have dissociated completely, mostly, completely my work life from my home life. And I think that's a big thing for anyone. Um, It's even more difficult now because I wasn't, but a lot of people were working from home. 
So when do you dissociate the work home life? Um, I think you gotta, let's say you have an office or even just a chair and a desk you sit in, that's your work, get out of there. That's a big thing. Um, when my wife comes home, first thing that happens, she changes out of her clothes, excuse me, clothes. I have dinner usually, or we have something going and we just sit and talk, not about work stuff, hopefully, but if she needs to unwind that last bit of work, I think work is something in America that dictates our lives and it shouldn't. Most countries have 30 hour work weeks and stuff like that. Um, that's great. But I think the pandemic for America has going to eventually show us that we can work really well with a short amount of hours and have the rest off. Hopefully that happens. Um, as a scientist, I dictate my, sh my schedule. I can like <laughs> do 10 hours work in five hours. Like that's just the nature of my beast. But hopefully other places and industries can see that and afford people that option because the work-life balance in America is off. That's a tangent for another time. Mm -hmm. So put my ass into gear and work, get home, shift out of that. Um, and also just enjoy a hobby or two. It sounds simple. I mean, I'm like super immersive in my hobbies. I started with, I mean, pre-pandemic, it was poker. I love that. I was obsessive with it. I'm still obsessed with it, but I'm not playing poker right now. Uh, now, now it's cooking and disc golf and it's just something to make your mind work and function. And there's a lot of studies that show as long as you're mentally stimulating yourself throughout life, you avoid certain disease. I mean, again, a whole nother podcast. If you want to get a couple other people on here and we talk about brain function and stuff like that, we'll spend hours. Um, but just something that stimulates you, that makes you question things, makes you even contradict yourself. Like, oh, I did it this way. Shit, I was wrong this whole time. Because if you're, it's another quote, if you're not learning, you're dead. Like there's no middle ground. You're either learning each day or you're dead. And if you're dead, you might be brain dead. You might be just clogging nine to five. You're dead. Come on, snap mm -hmm. out of it. Do something to feel, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's the short end of it. It keeps it simple. And I think if you have a routine, it's good, but also have a routine after your routine. If that mm -hmm. kind of makes sense. Yeah. Setting that boundary from work to life, super important and learning, always learn something new for your brain health. I hundred percent abide by that. Um, well, thank you. If there's anything else, where can our listeners find you? If you want to promote anything, if you're working on any research, um, thesis or anything. Yeah. I, I mean, I have two emails. You, I can give you, do you link this? How does that work? Here? We'll link it. Just link my one email if they want to reach out to me. If you want any of my recent papers, the one was published last year, I believe. Um, just search my name and then oligodendrocytes or autism and it, it'll pop up. It's, I, I hate to say it, it's probably the biggest paper I'll ever publish because it was so grandiose and now everything else is just filling in the pieces. So you always get one good paper as a researcher and then that's about it. Um, <laughs> hopefully this isn't it. Hopefully I, I cure autism, but chances are we're going to be paddling away at that for a while. Yeah. So. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much for coming on. This is a great episode. I really enjoyed um, asking these questions and having you answer them. So thanks for coming on. Um, and maybe we'll get you back and have a little like panel going or something fun for next season. We'll, we'll have to talk about it. I'm really interested in someone challenging me, uh, not from a medical or scientific perspective, but just challenge my views. And I would just talk about it. A general conversation. I love it. Um, it's, it's a debate. A debate should be nothing more than just a back and forth between people. It's not yelling match. I mean, some people have that stuff within their families. It's not that I genuinely am curious about all walks of life and you know, Hey, maybe we make a podcast about it. I yeah. would love it. Thank you, Bailey. Thank you, Natalie. Mm -hmm.